Uh, we are going to look at First uh, Peter 5, 1 through 5 this morning. Um, if you have ever done any leadership training in the church, this passage is probably very familiar to you. If you have not, then it might not be, and that is uh, absolutely okay. Uh, but this is one of those passages that is directly um, addressed um, to the leaders of Christ's church, and it, it is instructions on how those leaders are to carry, carry out um, that calling of leadership that they have. Um, it's a very important passage. I do find it um, a little bit difficult um, to preach on being a vocational leader in the church, not because I don't think about this all the time, because I literally think about this all the time. Um, but there is that sense in which um, it's, I want to be very sensitive to the fact of being a leader and telling other people how to, what that should look like and how everyone else should treat their leaders at the same time. Um, however, um, Peter is giving this as a gift to the church. Um, I think the things that he is giving us here are very, very rich. Uh, they are very good for us. Uh, they are given in love. Um, I think hopefully they will make sense as to why he is giving them. Um, and at the end of the day, I think that this passage is a great sign that we have a great chief shepherd uh, who is very concerned for the well-being of all of his sheep. Um, in whatever way, whatever position uh, that means that we are called to, that all of them end up fitting together in serving and promoting um, the goodness of our chief, of our chief shepherd. So I'll say that just uh, as a brief uh, introduction. Um, let me read this passage. It's just five short verses that are packed full of stuff to unpack today. Um, and then I'll pray and we will uh, jump right in. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Close yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Dear Jesus, our great chief shepherd, who knows the hearts and stories, uh, the difficulties and the joys of every single person um, in this room, and who loves us. Uh, deeply, and who is deeply devoted to our good, to our protection, um, and to our flourishing. Would you help us this morning? Would you feed us here through your word? Um, would you inform us well, but not just our heads, but that you would use your word to form our community together in hope um, and in faithful uh, service of you? Uh, we put this time before you in Jesus' name. Amen. I have titled this sermon, Leaders in a Dangerous Time, which is a little bit of a pun off of a song you might have heard from the mid-80s um, by a guy named Bruce Cockburn who wrote a song called Lovers in a Dangerous Time, uh, which he wrote while watching teenagers in a war-torn environment uh, flirting with one another. Um, and it struck him that in, in just the context of all of this violence and tragedy going on around, that in this small little sense, there is still this human... Uh, world um, that flowers up um, um, nonetheless. 
And I think when we were thinking about this in terms of the church, I mean, I really picked the title just because it was a pun on that, but, um, but there is a sense in which we are going about our daily activities often oblivious um, to what is going on around us, outside of ourselves, and particularly when that, um, when that manifests itself as suffering. Um, we saw last week, if you were here, that the thing that happened immediately before uh, Peter starts talking about elders is he is instructing the church in how to handle suffering. And so there is a direct correlation here between this task of shepherding and uh, the functioning of the body in coping with that suffering. Because I think in just observation of life and experience, then just one of those principles that is true is that when suffering goes up or when wolves are present, the sheep tend to scatter. And they tend to start to look at their own interests instead of the interests of the group. Um, And I have to use an illustration from the show alone, which I've been talking about nonstop for the last couple months. Um, So forgive me if this is obnoxious by this point, but it's a show by the uh, History Channel where 10 contestants are dropped off in survival situations. And it's a contest to see who can last the longest. Uh, but one of the seasons I just finished, they actually dropped everybody off in pairs. And so the two had to work together um, in order to survive. And there are these two brothers with wonderful Canadian accents who really said something profound at the very beginning of the show. They said, we can bring 10 of these survival items, but the number one item that is the most useful in your tool bag is the other person with you. Uh, they are your biggest uh, source of life and survival while out here. Well, guess what happens after just a few days in and when suffering goes up? They literally argue about everything that is out there. I mean, they are arguing about how high to hang the bait in the crab trap, which which renders them yelling at each other that they are absolute idiots. Uh, They are arguing about how many limpets to pick up. Uh, They start uh, accusing the other one of not doing enough work and that they are the one who is responsible for the survival, and it just digresses. You can see the pattern, is that when suffering goes up, then that unity they had, their commitment to each other, it goes down. And they start to look out for their own survival um, instead of the main point, uh, which which they are out there, which is to survive together and to win this money. And it continues that way, interestingly, until one thing happens. That one of the brothers gets sick and cannot do any work anymore for a few days. And in that element where the team is in crisis, then the brother actually has a change of heart. And he starts doing all of the jobs that the other guy was doing instead of the things that he was doing. He actually flips and adopts his brother's strategy. And he says... That now my role has changed. Where we were out here together, now my role is to take care of him. Uh, because he is my brother and he is in trouble. Um, and I won't give you a spoiler about how it ends, as that just, that just occurred to me that I probably shouldn't say how it ends. But it ends well. Um, they end up bonding together and they have a great finish um, at the end. But I think that illustrates a lot of what our life together. When our suffering goes up, Our hearts and our bodies and our communities tend to scatter. Uh, We start forgetting about the needs of those around us, and we only start looking out for the needs of our own. Uh, We we scatter from each other in community. We scatter from um, even our morals and the things that we believe in. 
that when we're doing our life here before Christ, um, that whenever it seems like this is not working and this is not delivering the life that it promises, then it is the tendency of the heart to revert back to old habits and that maybe it was better in Egypt than it is out here uh, in the desert. Uh, We can scatter deep inside of ourselves in order to protect ourselves from the wounds that we possess um, from each other and from the world. And this is the context that we are all living in, um, in life. And that Peter knows exactly, this is the context of the church as it is moving forward. And I want to say that giving them leaders is not the ultimate hope. What is very clear, what is the ultimate hope, is that there is a chief shepherd here. And that he might be invisible right now, but he is coming. And he will appear in glory, and he is bringing that glory with him. And that so the activity for the whole church is to view their lives according to the pattern of Christ. That rather than viewing this suffering as a problem in the plan, is that this is actually gets redefined in terms of Christ's suffering. That he suffered out of self-sacrificial love for the sake of others. And it was through this he was raised up by his father and seated at the highest seat of glory. And that there is nothing that we experience that is not under the protection of our chief shepherd, if we are united with him and that will not end in glory in the end. That is our hope. That is the hope of our whole activity together. But within the life of the church, he has given different experiences and different levels of maturity within it. And what he is exhorting, I think, the people to, and we will see this applies to not only the elders, but it applies to everybody is that these, this life with Christ that we have experienced is not just for our own sakes, but it is actually something that is also for the sake of the rest of the body. That as we have tasted in Christ's death and as we have tasted in Christ's glory and resurrection, that this surely is meaningful for us. It is a rich gift. But it is not a rich gift that just ends with us. But it is also a gift that is meant to be stewarded on behalf of the body, within a hostile context. And so through that, that these gifts would actually help the body to endure together on the road that Jesus has laid out before them. So that's what uh, I'm going to end up talking mostly about leaders today. We are going to get followers in here just a little bit. That's partially because they have the lion's share of instructions addressed to them. And I'll show how this actually applies to all of us, and we'll get followers in there a little bit. But um, in order to unpack this of how God is calling his people to, you know, steward the maturity and the experiences, life with Christ, um, this is going to be a dreaded four-point sermon, okay? It was either that or a two-point sermon with a lot of sub-points, so we'll just break it down to four. And if that's not cringeworthy enough, all four are alliterated, okay? So... Here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the calling of these leaders, their character, the community within which they exercise this, and then the condition of the hearts of these leaders at the end. It's going to be a lot of practical instruction because this is the character of this text. Um, But, you know, it is, I feel like the gospel is very, um, I hope that it becomes clear through all of this how, This is actually a response to the good news that God has given his people. And it is not something through which the burden of survival or faithfulness um, is ultimately placed upon. All right.
Let's look at the calling of these uh, elders or under shepherds who I'm going to end up calling them. Um, they're named as elders, um, and this is a bit of a broad term that's going to have both a broad and a restrictive um, meaning. Um, that elder, it just it literally just means the word is like older people. It means older. So these are like the gray hairs um, who have experience, and that experience is, is tied in particular with um, this life of Christ, um, that the witnessing of the sufferings of Christ, um, and also partakers of the glory that is going to be revealed. So it's very much uh, attached to their experience. And so in that sense, it is not only age. Uh, age is a factor, but it's, it's getting at maturity. And that these are people who have a rich and living and bright and, and uh, thriving, vibrant life with Christ. Um, who belong in him and their lives, they understand their lives according to the pattern of Christ, and then Christ's pattern ends up manifesting itself in their lives in evidence way. Um, so there's a general sense to this. Uh, there were elders in the Old Testament also who were, uh, they were leaders of families, they were influential people um, in in the midst of God's people. And also in, in this time and place, then this was the way the family was structured, is that there would be uh, elders, these older people who were looked up to and held in high esteem. And so there's a little bit of a pattern um, that the church is taking on here um, through the testimony of the Bible that, that the way there's a parallel from the way this exists in society uh, to the family of God, that the family of God, like an actual family, has elders and it has youngers um, that is mostly based on the maturity of experience with Christ. Uh, but this is also, the church has taken this in more of a technical sense as well, um, in that it became, that we see in several places in scripture that this term elder is actually an office um, that people can aspire to. We see in 1 Timothy 3, uh, that in Titus 1, then um, Paul commands each churches that are planted that they appoint elders. Um, so it is has this general sense, but also a restricted sense that ended up becoming um, an office like we have today. So we have elders here who patterned off of this are people of that have been recognized or selected from among our body who are recognized as um, spiritual parents who are especially mature and experienced and living out um, the life of Christ. Um, they are plurality and they become from among um, our midst. And these are the people that God has designated um, to provide leadership to the church. Uh, and we'll look at what that means in just a second. But I do want to say there's, an, uh, there's another broad sense of this that applies to all of us that is not just to church officers. Um, just look at how Peter associates himself with the elders. Um, Peter has an eldering function. He also has a unique office that is above the elders, which is that of an apostle. Uh, he was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Um, he is the rock on which Jesus said he would build his church. And look at what he says about these people. He says that uh, he calls himself a fellow elder. So he is associating himself not by his highest title that he could claim, but he is actually associating with this same activity um, of all of these other leaders in the church. He's saying that there is a unity between his role and the role of these elders. And in the same way, that encourages us that, that eldering, as in, especially with this word as shepherds as, um, that it includes in here, it is also reflecting an activity that actually we have a lot in common. It is not something that is just distinguished from there are elders who do all the shepherding and then there's everybody else who do no shepherding. 
Uh, but this is a way, there is a unity that leaders and non-leaders alike have in terms of stewarding our maturity in Christ, what we've learned with each other. And that, mar- that manifests itself in a lot of ways. There are a lot of parents in here um, that have a responsibility to shepherd their kids. Uh, we have neighbors who we have been given um, who are also people that we are united in life with, that we have to steward our life in Christ with. Uh, we have older people in here who have a lot of experience in various ways, even though that doesn't come in form of an office, that is not given just for the sake of us, but also for other people. All of the parts of the body of Christ you know, is a way of stewarding um, the grace we have been given in Jesus for the sake of everybody else. So I am going to talk about this in terms of leadership because it does particularly apply to the leaders of this church and it's good for all of us to see what a real leader of the church is meant to be according to the Bible. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have an application to the rest of us as well. Uh, This is a common activity of shepherding that God has given to all of us and a stewardship of what we have been given and who we are for the sake of the whole body as we are all going through this journey um, in Christ um, together. But what are they supposed to do? I think this, this task of shepherding um, is very, very important. And when we look at it throughout the context of Scripture, we see all kinds of things. We know that shepherds feed their sheep. Um, shepherds are always on the lookout um, for new pastures uh, through which the people um, could feed. Um, shepherds are people who are, are conscious of what the sheep are eating, uh, making sure that it is, it is nutritious and it is worthwhile. And in this sense, then, this shepherding is very, it very much reflects the task um, that God has given leaders in particular to feed the sheep with the ministry of the word, uh, which is a teaching ministry, is a communicating, um, it is a reflecting of the truth, the true story that God has given to his church for its own sake of reminding the people what is true and what is rich and what is good. But of course, this also involves leadership. Uh, You see in Psalm 23 that the the shepherd, it leads people beside still waters. And that's the thing is when we look at our life together, there are all kinds of goods. And there is often not an exact right answer. But there, just like a shepherd leads, it finds pathways from one pasture to another that is better than another. So elders and leaders, they lead. They're tasked with making decisions on behalf of the whole group, not just for themselves, but exercising their creativity and their wisdom to plot paths forward that are best. They might not be right, uh, but they, they uh, would inevitably need to be good. Shepherds protect the sheep. David wrestled wild animals in protection of his sheep in the Old Testament. And then parallel with that, these shepherds that they do not use and abuse the sheep but they are always on the lookout for their best interests. That when shepherds wander off, uh, when they are in danger, then the radar goes up. When they know their sheep, that leaders know where our sheep are vulnerable and where they need care. Um, and seek to intervene and be helpful whenever, whenever that is possible. And shepherds, of course, pursue lost sheep. Uh, just as Jesus uh, in his parable said the shepherd left the 99, 99 in pursuit of the one. So every sheep matters. In our relationships, in our family life, um, noticing our coming and going, it really matters. Whenever we have uh, um, uh, people that we love and we care about wander 
in ways that are very unhelpful. That is not a time to cut off the relationship, but is a very important time of pursuit, of showing love in the way that Christ shows love for us, that though we wander, our Savior pursues us, and he loves us even as at our worst until the end. Uh, so this metaphor of shepherding is very, very important, and we see that it is a much more holistic type of activity um, than just uh, making decisions on behalf of what the church should do or what they should not do. It is a full investment of care and love um, in those around us. And of course, that matters what their character is. Um, look through here at all of these. The lion's share of this is um, geared towards the character of their leaders. And I think this is very, very important because it is not just our time today where we are struggling with what the power that leaders have and the potential that leaders have to do more harm than good. Uh, That exists uh, here in this time just as much the same. And so we get all of these um, explanations of what this looks like. Um, First, it says that in their motivations that they exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly and eagerly. We might ask why somebody would be compelled to leadership, um, and that might have existed in different ways at different times, but uh, there are lots of ways that we, I'm sure you have said in your own heart and we hear every day. Uh, one of the reasons we can often serve is because nobody else will do it. And so therefore we must, and we are compelled to do it because there is nobody else. I think sometimes we can do it because we want to prove to God that we're actually living for him more than we are living to ourselves. And so we feel an inner sense of guilt that if our, that how we define that our maturity is growing is that we start to exercise particular leadership functions. Sometimes we have to prove to ourselves that we are living for God and not for ourselves. Sometimes that we have to prove, feel like we need to prove to ourselves that we are strong enough and we are not weak. Interestingly, I heard a sermon on this which Charles passed me, um, which was very, very good. He, he referenced that Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, his highest good in his ethic was to do the thing that you know you need to do that you most don't want to do. That is the pinnacle of what maturity means in Kant's ethic. It is a, an ability to suffer when you don't want to, but you know that you should. There are all kinds of ways that we can actually feel a sense of compulsion towards this. And the fact is, God doesn't need us. He does not need any one of us to take his place. Every one of these is an example in a negative way of actually taking the burden of what Jesus has done and putting it on our own shoulders. Jesus does not need any single one of us to fulfill his mission. He is perfectly powerful. He is perfectly capable of handling it on his own and through anybody. But on the contrary, what he is promoting this eagerness is that this is an eagerness not of compulsion, but out of a full, sold-out expectation of the glory of God that is to come, that has absolutely nothing about you. It is not an obligation that Jesus puts on his people. It is an invitation into the glorious story that God is weaving, that he is weaving on behalf of his people. 
That's what it says right here in anticipation of uh, when the good shepherd appears, that you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is not just an individualistic reward for suffering long term. This is a full anticipation that though the way is difficult and though it is winding and though the door is narrow on this way, that there there is a chief shepherd that though he is invisible, that he is actively at work and he will appear. And it is based on him that whatever this face is, that it is worth it and it is good. That is the sole reason, this invitation by God to participation in his ministry of why any of us has any business doing this in the first place. But on the flip side of that, there's also, he's in his invitation for us to be eager, there are ways to do this eagerly, uh, which are also not good. And I know that you have probably had an experience with leaders that you have felt like they are just a little too eager for this position, that it kind of makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, Because there are all kinds of things that we can gain out of this too. He says not to do this for shameful gain. And of course, this can be money. It also can be recognition. It can be the inner sense that we are doing something important and we are value. We're a valuable piece in this whole machine. It can be for power. It can be for being liked. I had a pastor tell me one time, generally, that people get into ministry for one or two reasons, to control people or to get people to like you. And I don't want that to sound overly uh, dark, because in the human heart, there's always a lot of things going on. There are negative characters that we bring to it, which often break into those categories, and there's the redemptive work of Jesus that he is working at the same time. So just because you see that, it doesn't mean that the spirit is not present. But man, leadership is so easy to get something out of it for our own sake, which actually turns out to be the same problem as the other, just in the opposite way. It is rather than being sold out of anticipation of the glory of God that is coming outside of us, it is once again bringing it under our own control. It is using leadership in a much smaller way, and there's something there where I have something I can control and grasp for myself. And not only does that disguise for ourselves and other people the actual good news that Jesus is bringing, but the good news that Jesus is bringing is so much more than any of this that we could gain. That his goodness is infinite. The glory of the kingdom is huge. And it is a poor choice to sell out the greater in order to get something small and immediate and tangible. There's a lot of effort here given to the character of leaders um, that begs our, um, our, our attention in very close ways. He even goes on to talk about not that they are to be not domineering, um, but to be examples, and this is, speaks to how this leadership is applied. So we could be good; at, we could be in it for good motivations, and we can apply it poorly. Um, you see this all the time in kids' baseball coaches who get these little bitty kids, and they're like, "I don't think you wanted it enough today. You need to go out there and be really ready to win." And they're like, "Okay," and then they start throwing sand. It's like. There might be a a good motivation behind it, but it's a poor application um, that speaks to the people. Um, This is not something for control, but it is something where even in our very lives, the pattern of Christ is made manifest. It's a willingness to suffer with Christ as he suffered not to control people.
Let me talk about the community for just a brief moment. And I hope this is encouraging to us that I think God has the protection of the people even from the leaders very clearly in view. He spends a lot of time noting the potential power that leader has, leaders have. But he does come in here and he says this, that uh, likewise, you who are younger be subject to the elders. That he does call them to follow the leaders. And it brings up all kinds of questions uh, for us. I mean, it made me reflect on this week. When is the last time I actually have followed somebody that I disagreed with with a willing heart? And it's really hard to come up with instances where that has happened. And there is great potential for leaders to do much wrong. But there is also great potential that given that is the case, to then shield ourselves off from them and to say that we are then our only master from that point on. Lauren showed me yesterday, there's a hilarious Instagram account, uh, something is like depressive affirmations or something like this, which has a lot of language in it. I'll just, I'll, uh, I'll give fair warning to that. Um, but she showed me one that said, you can't trust anybody. At the end of the day, the only one you can rely on is yourself. And that thought is pretty expletive terrifying. <laughs> Just like the brothers in the woods, it feels good for a little bit in our self-protection to choose our own way, to be autonomous individuals who only look out for ourselves. There will always come a time where we will find out that we are much smaller than we think, and we are much less capable. And God has given each other as a gift. He puts a lot of qualifiers around this and that we have great concern and care with each other, but... Every one of us is given to each other as a gift. And we need to take note of what he is saying here in regard to that. If you feel like I do now, especially of going through all of this and just listing it, just when I read this, it feels like a barrage of instructions. And they are good instructions, and they are very practical instructions that we need to internalize. But I'm tired right now just giving them out, like going through them. I'm sure you're tired of listening to them. And there's a sense in which when we get these, the practical instructions are very, very helpful, but they also lead us again to a real sense of crisis. That these are describing something that has never fully been the case of any leader anywhere at any time. And if we look into ourselves, I mean, I would challenge you if you cannot identify in whatever position God has put you in, the temptations to do all these things, to be liked, to control to get something out of it, to take something meaningful and tangible out of it, that our hearts are ripe with all of these things. And I want, it, I want us to end on noting the condition of these leaders. And in doing that, I want to remind us who is writing this letter. And I think it is very, very appropriate that Peter, the apostle who again and again and again got himself in a whole, whole world of hurt, is the one giving these instructions, which is great that we preach through the life of Peter before and setting us up for this. Peter is the one in John 14 who looked at Jesus when Jesus said he was going to lay down his life, and he said, no, you're not. I'm going to lay down my life for you because I am strong enough that I can handle any amount of suffering, and I will do this for you, Jesus. And Jesus said, no, no. That is not the story, and that is not what it is going to look like to be the pillar of this church, occupying this office I'm giving you. And of course, Peter was the one at the end of the day 
who perhaps made the biggest mess up of anyone in Scripture. That when suffering came up and people scattered, guess who else scattered? Peter. In the face of suffering, he denied his very Savior three times. How about that for somebody who's strong enough to lay down his life for Jesus? Look at what this last verse says. And this is to characterize all of us. Likewise, after he says, you're to be younger, be subject to the elders. Uh, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The central condition of leaders, wherever that might be in God's church, is that we never leave our sense of the condition from where we began. Our humility, our knowledge of our weaknesses, they will be there. They will always follow us. Those are not the things that excludes his people from office or from any role of leadership. In fact, humility, that is being well in touch with those things in our need of a Savior, is actually the place where we meet our Savior And where our maturity then grows. It is from the humble position where we are actually then able to point each other to the good shepherd. The one who is able to deliver his people. Who is able to reconcile our relationships. Who is able to turn suffering into glory. If we read down a little bit in 1 Peter 5, then whatever we face, he is able to fully restore his people. At the end, our weakness is essential. It's not saying that these other character qualifications, they don't matter, it's all a wash. They do. But what these do is they all point to this. They all point to the bedrock of our faith that Christ died to save sinners, of which, as Paul says, I am the foremost. And may that humility be the thing that characterizes all of our leadership. May that be the thing that characterizes our life together. And through that, our Savior will be magnified, magnified. And when our Savior is magnified, then we will have good news to feast on, even when things are brutally difficult. And we're going to transition here to the table. Um, that even as our Savior is invisible and he has not yet appeared, he has given us this visible sign. For humble people to bring to him our emptiness that we actually can taste and that we can see, and we can smell, and we can touch, that he is active, and that he feeds us in our very weaknesses. I'm going to stop there, and I'll pray for us, but I want to invite us, even as we sing, to meditate on that and get ready to come to him, um, that we might feed and feed abundantly. Dear Jesus, would you protect our church? Would you minister to us? Would you lead us? Um, Would you nurture us and mature us? that in all the things we do, that you would be the one who is magnified and not us. In Christ's name, amen.